Article 5, God's Sovereignty and Man's Free Will, by Pastor Reed Benson. Theologians and philosophers have expended considerable ink attempting to explain the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's free will. On the one hand, if God is completely sovereign, surely he must be in control of all things, leaving no choice to man. This implies fatalism and makes man something akin to a robot. On the other hand, if man has complete free will, this diminishes God to a mere spectator, a big guy in the sky, not particularly impressive or worthy of worship. So, which is it? As a preliminary thought, of interest to note is that this has not always been just a problem for Christian theologians. The ancient pagan Greeks struggled with this dichotomy as well, reframing it slightly as destiny versus free will. In the 5th century before Christ, the Greek playwright Sophocles wrote a famous play called Oedipus Rex, the tragic tale about a man who was given a terrible prophecy about his life in which he would kill his father and marry his mother. In seeking to prevent this evil from coming to pass, he unwittingly set in motion the very actions that would make it come true. Of course, this was fiction, but it showed how other thoughtful ancient people, even pagan ones, struggled with the sense that we should control our lives through the exercise of free will, yet worried that we would not. For us as Christians who hold the Bible to be our source of truth, it should be a manner of simply finding the right Bible passage to settle the issue. The trouble is, there are plenty of passages from Scripture that seem to teach both precepts. For example, consider these well-known verses that emphasize man's choice. From Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. And again in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Aha! There you have it, some exclaim. But not so fast. Consider these passages from Scripture that emphasize God's complete sovereignty. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. From Romans 9, verse 13 through 16. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. From Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. So, which is it? Is God completely sovereign? Or does man possess complete free will? Is the Bible contradictory? Is there any way to bridge this gap? This essay will not end the debate or answer all questions to the satisfaction of every reflective person. However, this is an honest attempt to resolve some elements of the debate. Perhaps we can make sense of practical reality of our daily lives, yet without reducing God to something like a friendly grandfather whose only task is to take charge of heaven.
before the fall. In the beginning, God granted Adam and Eve complete freedom of the will. It was this marvelous gift that set them apart from lower orders of life that have virtually no free choice of their own. Plants, for example, simply respond to external stimuli in accordance with an internal program. Higher orders of life, such as animals, have limited free will. They react to their environment primarily as their instincts tell them, with limited ability to override such impulses. Adam and Eve, however, were granted the ability to think and choose. Thus, prior to their fall into sin, they could choose to obey God or disobey. Their internal desires were wholesome. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 speaks of this freedom that Adam and Eve enjoyed. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. God is not the author of moral evil. However, he is the author of his creature's capacity to choose between good and evil. We all know the story. Satan tempted them, and they disobeyed God. Note carefully that while Satan influenced them, he did not control them. Satan did not force them to eat from the forbidden tree, which is why God asked Eve, What is this that thou hast done? in Genesis 3.13. Rather than this, What is this that Satan made you do? Satan, Eve, and Adam all made real choices and God judged each of them accordingly. The fall of Adam and Eve had extraordinary consequences beyond that which is immediately observable. Aside from being expelled from the garden and losing the gift of eternal life to the extreme extent that an angel kept them from it, and aside from Adam being forced to work ground that now would be prone to thorns and thistles, and aside from Eve bringing forth many children only to experience the sorrow of seeing some of them die, a more fundamental problem entered the internal elements of Adam and Eve. They were fallen. What does it mean to be fallen? First, the universe now has only one being with complete free will. Jehovah. He alone can do whatever he desires, and his desires will always be within the boundaries of his flawless character. After the fall, Adam and Eve still possess some freedom of the will, like them, each of us also makes free choices daily. Small ones, like whether to eat an apple or a banana with breakfast. Bigger ones, like whether to buy a house in town or in the country. And very big ones, like whom to marry and whether or not we will obey God's commands. But our freedom is limited because it is instinctively perverted in subtle ways. Why? It is because we lack the freedom to dictate our desires. While Adam and Eve were morally neutral beings as they tarried in the Garden of Eden, perhaps even being inclined toward that which is good, since they were in a state of innocence, we are not morally neutral. We do not thoughtfully and objectively choose. We often think we do, but in reality we are congenitally selfish, with desires that are perverted, corrupted, and twisted in a variety of small but significant ways. We do have the freedom to act upon our desires or reject them. However, we cannot dictate our desires or make them always wholesome. The best we can do is try to identify when they are pointing us in the wrong direction and choose to reject such impulses. 
Even this, we cannot get right all of the time, because our desires blind us to objective reality. Our fallen state leaves us in quite a fix, one that St. Paul famously addressed in Romans 7, verse 18 and 19. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. We can choose good, at least some of the time. We can choose to obey God, at least sometimes, or perhaps even most of the time. But we cannot choose to completely control our desires and compel our wants to be in perfect conformance with the holiness of God's moral commands. Thus, while we enjoy much freedom of the will and can choose from a variety of alternatives, our freedom of the will is limited. The greatest area of limitation is the one that matters the most. Yes, we can freely choose many things, where we live, what car we drive, how to dress, but that which we cannot choose is eternal life. The angel with the flaming sword, whose duty it was to keep Adam and Eve from returning to the Garden of Eden and eating from the Tree of Life, is, in a metaphorical way, still on duty. We're not able to transform our own hearts and make ourselves righteous before God. We cannot, of our own free will, reach out and take hold on the Tree of Life. Utterly dependent on God's grace, we cannot choose God because our hearts are corrupt and our desires are perverted. We do not fully desire God. Oh, some will argue and exclaim, wait a minute, I desire God. No, none of us desires God from our own resources in a full and open way, without reservation. Instead, we want God with qualifiers. If he will take away some pain, or remove an accuser, or give us something we lost, then we will follow our Father in heaven. Equally important, we cannot scrape up saving faith of our own resources. From Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Do you see the vital reality here? What faith we have is from above, not of ourselves. God gives us the faith we need to be saved and become recipients of eternal life. So, just how free are we? Free enough to be human. Free enough to be morally accountable for our choices. Free enough to do good deeds of kindness, but not free enough to transform the fundamental desires of our hearts and not free enough to reach out and apprehend eternal salvation of our own accord. More about freedom. We speak of freedom and slavery as if they were absolutes, but this is not an accurate reflection of reality. The lowliest of slaves has limited choices regarding his life, but he still retains a few scraps of free will, even if it is just choosing to work slowly or choosing to be efficient. Think of a prisoner in the state penitentiary. He has some freedom. He can read, lift weights, watch television, or write a letter. Of course, he cannot take a hike in the mountains or visit his friends in Europe. He has some freedom, but within significant limits. This prisoner, in bondage, makes real choices. More importantly, consider the other end of the spectrum, those of us who consider ourselves free. 
Am I completely free? Can I do anything I like? I am free and have many choices than the man in the state penitentiary, but I cannot successfully pole vault. I can't spend every day fishing. Yes, I could try to do those things, but I cannot escape the negative consequences that will crash down upon me rather soon, thus reducing my freedom even more after my ankle is twisted and I go bankrupt. You see, a world of freedom involves cause and effects. Even the fabulously wealthy cannot use cocaine and alcohol on a regular basis without suffering the consequences. For any choice to be real, it must be effectual, meaning it has structure and possesses predictability. Miracles must be the exception rather than the rule of life. The incredible gift of choice that God gave Adam and Eve was not without risk. When they freely chose to disobey God, and he expelled them from the Garden of Eden, they did not lose all freedom. However, they did have to suffer consequences, pain, endless labor, sorrow, and death. We, like them, live in a world with much freedom, but we are not so free that we can avoid the consequences of our choices. The suffering of our world fits a God who despises evil, but values freedom so that he can enjoy meaningful relationships with his creatures, us. Yet we are not truly free within ourselves, because we cannot dictate our desires. Thus, in the one area of life that matters the most, our eternal destiny, we have no freedom whatsoever. We are slaves to sin. This ugly reality was the springboard for a famous debate 500 years ago between Martin Luther and Desiderius Erasmus. The Dutch scholar Erasmus argued that since God repeatedly commands us to obey him, we must have also been given the capacity or free will to do so. This makes some sense, for we live that way. I would not command my teenage son to split firewood with his magic finger, but I might command him to do so with a splitting maul. Luther countered with the fact that while much blessing comes from obeying God's law, Another higher and more spiritual purpose exists for the law. It forces us to admit our need for a redeemer. Luther wisely argued that our inability to keep all the law properly all the time makes us conscious of our sinful condition and drives us to repentance. He quoted Romans chapter 3, 20 and 23. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This gave rise to the title of Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will. It is not that people cannot modify many sinful and destructive behaviors. People can and sometimes do improve themselves. Even dramatic alterations may occur when a person sets his mind to choose better. But none of us can escape the sinful nature that is built into us. Take time to read Romans 7 carefully. It does not say that sinners can never do something good. Rather, it says that sinners cannot stop doing evil. Regeneration. This is why true repentance, a saving faith, that gift from God, produces regeneration. It is the gift of being born again or born of the Spirit. Once we're regenerated, God gives us the first fruits of the Spirit and begins to change what we want. He does what we cannot. He alters our desires. Consider this quote from R.C. Sproul, 
Reformed theology does not teach that God brings the elect kicking and screaming against their wills into his kingdom. It teaches that God so works in the hearts of the elect as to make them willing and pleased to come to Christ. They come to Christ because they want to. They want to because God has created a desire in their hearts to come to Christ. St. Paul wrote the following beautiful passage describing the inward changes of desires, wants, and motives that believers experience. From Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of our God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's essential to understand that this regeneration is the same as the renewing of the Holy Ghost and is the result of the kindness and love of God, not the result of our decision-making or any choice in our part. Also note that before God makes this alteration, we were serving diverse lusts and pleasures that came from within ourselves. This is consistent with what Jesus stated in Mark 7, 21-23. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. We are free to do many things, choosing wisely or foolishly regarding our clothes, cars, homes, friends, jobs, hobbies, and a host of many other aspects of life. But we are not capable of freely choosing to alter our desires or wants on a fundamental level. We might be able to change our minds, but only God can change our hearts. Only Jehovah, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can cause us to want a relationship with God that makes our salvation possible. Only God can guide us back to the tree of life and break the bondage of our will that ties us to sin. Only the sovereignty of God can bring us to the point of true repentance and grant us saving faith in Jesus Christ. Thus, to God belongs all the glory.